exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. Bringing you sports from NBA to NHL to NFL and more. But more importantly, bringing you the full rundown on MSU Spartan Sports. We cover it all. Get us on the phone at 432-3893. And now, the Spartan Sports Wrap on Impact Exposure. Hey, what's going on, everybody? You are listening to the Spartan Sports Wrap here on the Impact 89 FM. As usual, I'm Scott, your host. Sitting across from me is Pavel. We'll be joined in a What's little up? bit by someone new, Alex Altman, uh, the basketball reporter for the State News here on campus. Excited to have him in, get to hear his opinions. Usually just get to read what he says, but now we get to actually hear him, voices, thoughts. Pavel, how's your weekend been going? Been and going happy good. Martin Luther King Day, everybody. It's been everybody. good. You know, I have, I have a five-day weekend, so it's pretty nice. No class today, no class tomorrow. No class. I'm ex- I'm Did you have it. class Friday? No. Okay. No. Nope. So, five days. So you're basically on another break. That's good way. Good way to start off. Watch, the semester. Watching a lot of Big Ten basketball. Big surprise. <laughs> yeah. Surprise, surprise. Pavel's watching Big Ten basketball. Pretty every sure, single game. Pretty sure every day I get a text from you about, oh, you got to check out this game. Got to check out this <laughs> game. <laughs> and I can never see them. I'm usually always gone. Never around a TV. But, you know, I'm. 
I'm glad to have an expert on the Big Ten like you sitting across from me. Makes me Thanks. makes me feel secure there. Now, I mean, there's there's no other way to start this off besides the Arizona Cardinals are going to the Super Bowl. I love it. I mean, just just let that sink in for a second. The Arizona Cardinals are going to the Super Bowl. How is that? I mean, who who guessed that? Who who picked? Okay, I picked them. They backed into the playoffs too, so oh, nobody yeah. really. They, they won their division early and then just kind of fell Came fell in. right off. I mean, they got blown out. I think they lost like five of their last seven games. Something like something that. Like got that, blown yeah. out by New England. Lost bad blown to the Eagles. the Eagles. Yeah. And okay, I picked them to beat the Atlanta Falcons in the first round of the playoffs. I I didn't think Matt Ryan. I don't don't ever like picking a rookie quarterback for any. I mean, in the playoffs, it's just not a smart pick. But I bet maybe 2% of fans, of just people in general, picked them to beat the Carolina Panthers in the second round. Yeah, nobody and, expected it, but nobody expected the Arizona defense to be so hot. Exactly. I mean, their secondary, how many interceptions have they had against the Eagles and the Panthers combined? Um, I mean, they had, the I think, two six. against the Eagles. Six one, inter- one against the Eagles, five against yeah, the Panthers. Incredible. I mean, they. I don't want to make a prediction yet. There's still two weeks until the game. We never know things could happen. We've got. You never know what injuries might arise through practice. You never know what's going to happen with the latest wide receiver diva, Anquan Bolden. We'll get to him in a little bit. I can't believe. Can't believe wide receivers in the NFL. How it just they just upset me so much. But that that shouldn't take away from what Larry Fitzgerald is doing. The wide receiver for the Arizona Cardinals, he set the record for most receiving yards in a single playoff. And he broke Jerry Rice's record of 419 yards. And he's done that through just three games. He still has one more to go. He's had over 100 yards receiving in all three of his playoff games. He might be having the most prolific playoff in the history of the NFL if he can cap this off. Win or lose, if he still gets... You know, a pair of touchdowns and over 100 yards in a Super Bowl, and they lose. He will still have one of the greatest performances in a playoff in a playoff year in the NFL. Would you say right now, Larry Fitzgerald is the top receiver in the league? He has he has to be right up there. Who who else did you put around him? Oh man, Randy Moss. Okay, Randy he, Moss. He reminds me a lot of Randy Moss. The fact that he can catch it in double triple coverage. He can beat a guy easily, and in a crowd. I mean, on some of those flea flickers, Kurt Warner knows all he has to do is put it within reach, and Fitzgerald will adjust and catch that ball. I've never seen somebody go up and get the ball as well as he does. There's one. There was like a seven-yard pass to the left where Warner just threw it so high, and I think you know the pass I'm talking about. And Fitzgerald pulled it down and then pulled three defenders for a couple of extra yards. So it, it was incredible. It's not just his jumping ability, but he is he is strong, too, and he runs good routes now. I mean, he used to be a ball boy back for the Minnesota Vikings, and he learned under Chris Carter, who is one of the best receivers of all time. I mean, Chris Carter, all he does is score touchdowns. But he was a ball boy and really just was mentored by him. And Carter told him that he needed to become more well-rounded and work on his route running and everything like that and i mean he is not just a one-trick pony it used to be he was just a deep threat he just just go down the field 
and they'd use Anquan Bolden for everything else. Well, now they're using Larry Fitzgerald for everything. In this game, he had nine catches for 152 yards and three touchdowns, all three of those touchdowns in the first half. I mean, there's not much more of a dominating player or a player that has a bigger impact playing right now. I can't think of anyone. We're joined by Alex. How are you doing, Alex? I'm doing great. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. You were at the basketball meeting. Yeah, I just left. Just left the practice. Long practice. Now, tell everybody a little bit about what you do here. Well, I uh, I work for the State News, uh, Michigan State student newspaper. I'm one of the two men's basketball reporters along with Cash Kruth. And, you know, I've just been covering the team the last couple of months and uh, observing it and doing a little writing. And um, I'm very happy to join you guys all here. All right, so you're you're basketball reporter, but do you watch other sports? I, I I am a uh, man who does enjoy is uh, enjoy every sport out there. So definitely not a one dimensional college basketball fan. All right, so what's your take on the Arizona Cardinals? What they've been doing? It's you know it's pretty fascinating to me. Um, yeah, kind of is growing up a Detroit Lions fan. I guess I draw a little inspiration from the Cardinals, uh, another team that's really. Found its, uh, I mean, ha- experienced its, its share of uh, losing the past few seasons. And, you know, Arizona's a pretty good team. Uh, you know, their defense is really what's impressed me most about them. Uh, they're blitzing. They're getting after the quarterback. You know, they're forcing opposing quarterbacks to really, I mean, make Aaron throws. And, you know, that offense, I know you guys were just talking about Larry Fitzgerald. I, I'd have to agree. I'm not sure there's a, a more polished, a more exciting receiver out in the NFL than Larry Fitzgerald is right now. And, you know, combine him with Anquan Bolden and Steve Breston and all, all those other receiving threats, and it's a very dynamic package they've gotten. The resurgence of Edron James at the running back position has given that team another dimension. So it's been a lot of fun watching them, and I'm not sure they're going to lose in the Super Bowl either. Yeah, you know, I was just thinking, you said, you said the Detroit Lions, and, you know, Adrian Wilson, he has been with the Cardinals for all Eight of the years. Futility. He signed an extension to you know, stay with them. He's like the Jason Hansen is to the Lions. Adrian Wilson is to the Cardinals. So mm-hmm. if if the Lions ever do make it to the Super Bowl, they'll be talking about Jason Hansen. Jason Hansen's gonna be the guy crying on, you know, the post game show. He's gonna be the one that's, all teary eyed. That's well, a good the Lions go to the Super Bowl before Jason Hansen's <laughs> legs fall off. So I was gonna say it's a good theory, but I don't know if Hansen can still kick when he's seventy five. <laughs> might be a little while until the Lions are there. You were talking about the resurgence of Edrin James, the running back. He used to be an Indianapolis Colt, moved out to Phoenix, to Arizona a while ago. He was the starter early on, and I mean, it's a it's a pass-first offense out in Arizona. I mean, they everybody knows that. And then he got benched for the rookie, Tim Hightower, out of Richmond. And somehow, he come, he's come back in the playoffs. He's well-rested. He rushed for 73, 74 yards on about 15 or 16 carries. And in the first half, he really set the tone. He was running for about eight yards a carry, and that opened up the field for that passing game. And for Tim Hightower to take over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, there were there were some plays that were just unbelievable in this game. I mean, obviously the double pass, the the flea, flea flicker, flicker. Uh, double pass to Warner for one of the three touchdowns that Fitzgerald caught. Um, Kurt Warner on the day, he ended up throwing for four touchdowns. He went 21 of 28 for 279. Four touchdowns, no interceptions. Almost hit that 300-yard mark because he is so famous for throwing 300 yards in big, big games. I mean, there was a stretch this season where he had like six straight games with 300 yards passing. I mean, there's two games where he had 400 yards, so airing it out to Bold and Breston and Fitzgerald, so it's impressive. 
Well, yeah. if, if Arizona didn't have that running attack, you might see uh, Kurt Warner throwing for maybe even 400 yards. I mean, when you have all those receiving threats and you're airing the ball out all the time, I mean, yeah, but they also built a big lead in the first half. They tried establishing the run in the second, and, I mean, that's a big reason that Kurt Warner didn't put up over, you know, more than 300 yards. Now, you're talking the big lead in the first half. Arizona just, they, they jumped on the Eagles. I could not believe it. They, at halftime, the score was 24-6 to in Arizona's favor over the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, the second half was a totally different story. I don't know what kind of speech Andy Reid gave at halftime, but they they needed to record that so that other people can use it because the Eagles finally remembered where they were, that they were in yet another NFC Championship game, didn't want to lose again. They came out, and they scored three straight touchdowns. I mean, Brent Selleck, the tight end, who he caught two touchdowns, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that he's related to, to Garrett, to Selleck. Garrett yeah. Selleck. Yeah. I'm not sure if they're brothers. They're both from Cincinnati yeah, a few years they're apart. They're brothers. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. Garrett, a uh, yep. redshirt freshman on the Michigan State football team. But the Eagles came out, and they turned it into a really good game. I mean, they took the lead, 25-24, with 10 minutes, 45 seconds left in the game. Amazing catch by Deshaun Jackson. Yes. Mm. I mean, Bob Lynn, that if you saw Torrey Holt make that one catch last year, that was bobbling, bobbling, and took it to the end zone. So it was a really impressive catch. And you thought right after he made that catch and scored the touchdown and gave uh, Philadelphia the go-ahead score, you thought from then on in, from that point, that Philadelphia was just going to run away with it, that they were going to get the stops they needed. But, I mean, when you have Kurt Warner under center, uh, a guy who's just as polished and as, uh, you know, as, as dynamic as he is, and what, what surprises me, not, nah, it doesn't really surprise me, but what, you know, when I, when I see look at Kurt Warner, what impresses me most about him is just his pocket presence, the courage when he's standing under center, um, you know, with, with Brian Dawkins and all those defensive backs and linebackers flying at him. I mean, the guy stays in the pocket, takes the hit, makes the throw, and he's always dead on. His accuracy is just phenomenal. Well, I was just going to say, uh, me and you were talking during the game in the second half, and if the Eagles had played like that the entire game from start to finish, uh, I think the Eagles would be in the Super Bowl right now. Absolutely, but, you know, it just didn't happen. And, you know, Kurt Warner, you know, touche to him. Kudos for, you know, responding after the Eagles took over. Now, are you a big Kurt Warner fan? You have to be yeah, a huge I, Kurt Warner fan. I love Kurt Warner. Being from St. Louis, he took us to the Super Bowl in 99. It was great. I mean, I was just going to mention, you know, in that Super Bowl, the Titans came back, and that next drive, Kurt Warner aired it out to Isaac Bruce for that nail in the coffin, if you remember that. I mean, deep for like a 70-yard touchdown. It really responded after the Titans really grabbed momentum. So same thing happened with the Cardinals and Eagles there. And what I was going to say, okay, so the Eagles come out, and they score two touchdowns in the third, score again in the fourth on that pass to Jackson, take the lead. They failed to get the two-point conversion. So they're up by one point, 25-24. And then the strangest thing happened. Arizona, who is the, the pass-happy offense, scores quickly, went on a 14-play, 72-yard drive that took 7 minutes and 52 seconds. And, of course, they topped it off with a touchdown. And that drive, I mean, they, they just whittled the clock down. There was hardly anything that Philadelphia could do after that. But on this drive, there were just so many, just at least two key plays, both by Tim Hightower. Fourth and one. They go for it, and everybody's expecting them to go up the middle. And it's kind of just a run to the outside. And he was able to get it. And everybody, if he wouldn't have made that, it would have been 
the offensive corner, whoever's calling the plays, they would have had his head on a stick because you never run outside on fourth and one. You run it right up the middle. And they had the perfect game plan because they weren't really going for the big plays. They were throwing on the first and second down maybe, throwing it seven yards to set up third and short, you know, so they could run it with Hightower, Edger, and James. So they're setting up second and short, third and short by passing it, you know, six or seven yards. So it was easily moving the ball down the field. And they're setting up their long pass by, you know, dinking and dumping to wide receivers, getting Breston or Fitzgerald in space, letting them, you know, get forward for like six, seven yards. Not huge plays, but plays that will, you know, make make second and third the down and distance is a lot shorter and eventually, you know, commit the, commit the safeties up into the box and, you know, once those safeties are up in the box, I mean, that, that's up, sets up Fitzgerald. I mean, Fitzgerald, if he's only single covered and that ball is anywhere near him, Fitzgerald's going to come down with the ball because his vertical, his, I mean, his, I mean, his, his, the way he just acrobatically, you know, jumps into the air and somehow, I don't, I don't know how he does, but it always seems to end up with the ball, absorb it. It's it's something that I've I've just never seen a, another player um, do do the kind of things that he does. Randy Moss back in his prime maybe, but you know even Randy Moss he was just so fast and he would get open. I don't even think Randy Moss though made ca- the type of catches that Fitzgerald makes. Yeah, I I don't think so. Moss was definitely more of the deep threat. Then uh, they get down down on the goal line, down about the eight yard line. It's third and goal, and they need a need a big play, and everybody I. I assumed you go to Larry Fitzgerald. They'd gone to him every time since then. That last drive, they threw it nine times. I think pretty much all of them were thrown at Larry Fitzgerald. They ran a screen, a screen to the running back, Tim Hightower. Now, I could not believe that they made that call. And of course, Gutsy. He, Gutsy. I mean, and he get, made it into the end zone, just barely. Get, got hit at about the one and backed into the end zone to take the lead. And, I mean... What besides gutsy? What was that play? I mean, it was set up set up very well. But how did you did you think they would ever do that? No, it's just rolling a dice whenever you do a screen with that short field. So you know, you you don't have that much space for a screen when you have that much field to work mm-hmm. with. So you have what ten yards, not much space at all. And you know the blockers were there. Tim Hightower made some plays and made some guys miss. So. You know, you, you got to give it up to him, too. And then, of course, they were able to hold on defense. They actually got the ball back, then had to punt. All this, each team had a possession in the last two minutes of this game. Philadelphia gets the ball back. They're driving again. It's fourth down, fourth and eight or nine, maybe even ten. And they run it out to Kevin Curtis. And the safety comes up for the Cardinals. It comes up, and it looked like he tripped. And then hit the leg of the wide receiver as the ball was coming, and kind of took out Curtis, and he wasn't able to get the ball. There was no call. I think it should, there should have been a call. Yeah, it I looked think like Kevin Curtis, Curtis makes that catch. Yeah, I mean you can maybe argue that it was uh, you know simultaneous. Uh, I mean contact there, but I mean didn't really seem like it to me. I mean I think the the safety out there was Hood, and you know it definitely looked like Hood got got you know kind of whipped into his legs, and you know definitely threw him off balance, and you know changed the. Uh, I mean, cha- changed uh, Curtis's ability to to actually make the catch. So it looked like interference to me. And of course, if it's called pass interference, it's automatic first down. No call. I mean, the refs did not call pass interference. Turnover on downs. The game was over. And I mean, I can see why the refs wouldn't call it. They want wouldn't want to have that big of an impact on the game and leave their mark like that. But I think, I just think you have to make that call. They're, it's unfair to Philadelphia because. It 
from everything that I've seen, it, it was pass interference. I mean, accidental, sure. I'll give I'll give Hood the safety that. But regardless of intent, it's still pass interference. Yeah, I mean, I think you see it more more now than uh, you know than ever before. You see referees uh, kind of swallow the whistle late in games when you know that call could change the scope of the game or change the outcome of the game or have you know have a have a direct influence on it. And you know it's something that you know I'm sure others would uh, would disagree with me when I say this, but I think you know you, you gotta you gotta observe the I mean follow the rule book. I mean if it's interference, it's interference, <laughs> and he definitely you know took Curtis off of his route and. I mean, by the book, that was interference, but you know, you can, I guess, you can kind of, to an extent, understand why the officials would not would not make that call in a situation like that. But it's kind of like in the NBA or in college basketball, late game situation, the game is tied. There, point two seconds left, and a you know, a player is is putting up a miracle, you know, seventy foot jump shot to win the game when the chances of it going in are like zero point, you know, half a percent. But you know, you still, if, if if a defensive player whacks his arm and changes the course of the ball, changes the tra- tra- trajectory of the ball, then you know you'd argue that. You know, I mean, there there is an argument that he could blow the whistle there. Right. Now, on this last drive, I mentioned that Fitzgerald was the target throughout pretty much the entire game. Anquan Bolden, <clears throat> the other star wide receiver that the Arizona Cardinals have. He only had four catches for 34 yards. He was nursing a sore hamstring, an injured hamstring, but he still, he could have played. He was playing. It just seemed like they weren't using him enough. And that's exactly how he felt. He went right during this last drive, the touchdown drive they had. Anquan Bolden went to Haley, the offensive coordinator, the play caller for the Cardinals, and got into an argument with him, like a yelling argument with him, complaining, I'm sure, about not getting the ball enough. No, it was actually, uh, he made a statement, the coordinator, he said that Bolden was upset that he was taken out for Steve Breston, that Steve Breston went in the game over Anquan Bolden. And this Bolden's the guy who, you know, in the offseason requested to be traded. Exactly. He didn't get his way with his contract. Larry Fitzgerald got the big contract extension. Bolden did not. They were waiting until this year, this offseason. And he threatened to trade. He wanted a trade. He threatened that he wouldn't come to training camp. And, I mean, this is just the... And the worst part is, he was upset. Okay, I'll give him that. But still, his team won the NFC Championship game. They're going to the Super Bowl. He didn't even celebrate with his team. Instead, he went to the showers and tried to sneak out the back of the locker room. He was so upset that he couldn't celebrate the biggest win in franchise history with his teammates. Now, I don't know. There's just It seems like there's just a long line of these divas in the NFL, and for some strange reason, they are all wide receivers. I don't know if it's just because they're the ones that catch the media's eye, but you have T.O., Chad Johnson, Plexico Burris, and now you have this going on with Anquan Bolden. And I'm sure there's others that I'm forgetting to mention, but those are the ones that come to mind readily because they're the ones that are always complaining, always have something. And I just, I mean, you made it to the Super Bowl. Who cares if it was Larry Fitzgerald? That's the reason you didn't get the ball if you're if he was upset about that. When Larry Fitzgerald's on your team and he's having the season, the postseason he's having, you've got to realize that he's going to be thrown to because he doesn't drop the ball. Yeah, especially considering Bolden's injury. 
you know, Bolden was not 100% entering that game. I was actually surprised to see him out there because from the reports, you know, that I heard, it didn't even seem like he was going to be able to go. And, you know, with so much depth at wide receiver, you wouldn't think they would, you know, they'd risk, you know, having him out there and, you know, he'd just have an adverse effect on their offense. You know, this reminds me of, you know, talking about Bolden's injury and him not being 100%. You know, it's the coach there taking him, you know, taking precautions, seeing how much playing time he's going to get. It reminds me of, you know, a guy like LaDainian Tomlinson, who the last few times his team's been in the playoffs, he's had some injury and he's had to watch from the sideline. But, he, you know, he's calm, he's quiet on the sidelines, and, you know, he's letting Darren Sproles get the publicity. But still, you know, the team wins, and he's happy. It's weird to see. It's weird for me to see Bolden draw this kind of negative attention to himself because I never really perceived him as the kind of diva that would actually do that, that would sneak out the back of the locker room after they win the Super Bowl. I mean, there are very few people in the NFL who I think would do that. I mean, even Terrell Owens, you know, he's a selfish guy, but, you know, even a guy like him, you think, okay, catches zero passes in the game, but if they're going to the Super Bowl, he's going to be there and celebrate with them. I thought, yeah, I didn't even know that, and I that's bizarre to me. Well, it's tough yeah. for Bolden because, you know, he was there before Larry Fitzgerald. Came now Larry Fitzgerald came, yep. comes in and steals a spotlight. He completely surpasses Bolden, and Bolden's just the guy, you know, living under the shadow now. So, you know, all he can do is complain, but Fitzgerald's just gone way past him. Yeah, and I mean, and not to say that Anquan Bolden still isn't a fantastic football player. I mean, he's one of the best, not just receivers, but what we've said before, he's not necessarily a receiver. He's more of just a football player. Look yeah. at how many touchdowns he's caught this year. Exactly. I mean, he's right up there in top He's tied top for third, five. I do Yeah, believe. top three. Yeah. I mean, he's a fantastic player. Now, the other side, the AFC Championship game. Now, we figured, what, what was the prediction you said? You said 5-2. Pavel, Pavel predicted, you said Steelers won in 5-2, right? No, I said you could toss a, a toss-up. Either team could win 5-2. Okay. Well, I, I, I did pick the Steelers, yes. You did, you did pick the Steelers. Steelers did win. They beat the Baltimore Ravens at home and just... In bad weather, cold, cold weather. It's it wasn't Pittsburgh. too windy. It's Pittsburgh. It's to be expected. 23-14 final score. A team finally got to Joe Flacco, the rookie quarterback for the Ravens in the playoffs. He had yet to throw an interception. He didn't even have any turnovers yet. The Pittsburgh defense is a little bit better than the other ones he's faced. A little bit faster. Flacco went 13 for 30 with 141 through three interceptions, one of which basically sealed the game. Uh... Troy Polamalu returned an interception for a touchdown with 4.24 left in the game. Rookie quarterback, meet the Steelers' defense. Exactly. I, that's why I assumed I, I picked the Steelers to win, just because, like, the same reason I didn't pick Matt Ryan to win. He's a rookie. Joe Flacco's played well, but that Steelers' defense is too hard for a rookie to play against. And it was, I mean, it was a good game to watch. It was close, but... It's hard to watch in some senses, man. There are some big hits in that game. If oh, you're yeah. sitting on your couch, it's oh, fun well, to watch. Okay. But, you know, if, if you're faint of the heart, then, I mean, some of those hits in that <clears> game right from the very beginning when Darren Stone went down, I mean, th that was one of the most brutal games I've ever seen in my life. And kind of knew coming in, it, it would be. And you knew that there was a chance that someone would get laid out and someone would get hurt and someone would end up in the hospital. And Well, this is the team. This is the game. <laughs> These teams, it was the third time they've played each other. They're known to hate each other. Both teams do. They're conference rivals. This was the game early in the season where they said there was a bounty on 
other players. I think Terrell Suggs said there was <laughs> a bounty Ward. on Heinz Ward. And, I mean, I thought it was kind of ironic. Heinz Ward actually got injured in this game. He hurt his knee early in the game. He caught a pass for a first down, and he just, it was an ugly-looking tackle. His foot stuck in the ground, and he rolled over it. Hopefully he'll be okay for the Super Bowl. He's got two weeks. But, I mean, like you said, there were just vicious hits, people flying around the field. And I want to get to this. The, the hit on Willis McGahee, it was in the fourth quarter. The Ravens were driving, and they threw a pass. McGahee came out of the backfield, going up the middle. And the safety for the Steelers, Ryan Clark, just laid him out. And he launched himself head first. He, he led with this helmet, hit him. It was helmet to helmet. I mean, you can't, there's, I mean, physical evidence, it was helmet to helmet. The thing is, Willis McGahee was kind of ducking. But I don't. What's what's your guys thought? I, I didn't. I thought it was a clean hit. Uh, I thought it looked a lot worse than it actually was from uh, from Clark's end. Uh, Clark, you know, he went after him. He was obviously going for the big cat. He was going to go, you know, head to the sternum, helmet to the sternum. But he ended up, you know, unfortunately cracking heads with him. And like you said, um, from what I watched tonight, I, I watched the replay several times just because. I mean, pure unadulterated. I mean, not. I don't want to say humor, but. It was it was pretty fun watching that hit over and over and over again. Even you know though McGahee ended up getting hurt, but just from from what I saw, you know it didn't really look like it was a dirty hit on on by Ryan Clark. Uh, McGahee did kind of duck at the last second, try to absorb the contact, and unfortunately Clark just went after him like a missile and just laid him out. Yeah, I think it was unfortunate that McGahee was hit right at that moment where he was like in the most awkward position to go down and get tackled. I mean he has knees down buckled and he was just hit and you know it i couldn't help but think when i was watching it i couldn't help but go back to the fiesta bowl when he was taken out yeah, when exactly he tore all three of his ligaments in his knee and they kept showing that replay i mean this is the second time he's been you know carted off with a serious injury like this it but, was very familiar to yeah, see it him was very familiar on the field yeah and everybody around him you know hoping that he's all right but you know he was released from the hospital today yeah, yeah, that, so. that kind of injury looked like it could have been a lot worse than it actually Absolutely. was. I, I mean, you, you could kind of see when he was laying on the turf, he was moving his arms a little bit, moving his legs a little bit. So, you know, immediately my first thought was, okay, thank God it's not paralysis. It's not it's not something that will probably be life-threatening him, but it's something that could jeopardize his football career, especially if it was his other leg. And they did say he was released from the hospital, severe neck and head pain. It's basically it, which, is, I mean, with, with that kind of a hit, to only have that, is is amazing because it was just a vicious hit. Yeah, and but the thing is, I I'm still understand. I think it wasn't a clean hit. It wasn't a dirty hit. It was kind of in between. I, I'm sure that Clark didn't mean to do it on purpose, but he still could have been cleaner in it. And I would not be surprised to see him get fined by the NFL by Roger Goodell. I think he'll get fined. You know, a couple of grand. That's it. You know, it's well, like he might change. get fined just because of the end result. And he'll he'll right. probably phone, you know, call McGahee and apologize. Oh, I'm and sure. Well, just, I don't think anyone intends to, you know, as much yeah. as these teams hate each other, no one intends to endanger somebody's life like that. It's the heat of the moment, the heat of the game, the adrenaline pumping, you know, you just you leave it all out there on the field. And, you know, the Pittsburgh, one of their best, biggest hitters is a wide receiver. Heinz Ward. <laughs> Absolutely. Definitely. You know, and Troy Palomalu could be a uh, wide receiver, too. He you is, see how way, the way he scary. runs it. I mean, him and Ed Reed, Each every time they get the ball, if they get an interception, watch for them to take it back for a touchdown. That's what I texted you. I was waiting. The I mean, game was still close. 
I actually had it going the other way. I was expecting Ed Reed to pick one off and take it back for six to really change the game. Happened to be Troy Polamalu. I mean, each one, I mean, both future Hall of Fame safeties, they are revolutionizing the position again for what it is. I mean, those two, it's it's scary. I would hate to be a quarterback that has to throw against them. Now, these two quarterbacks that are meeting in the Super Bowl, you have Ben Roethlisberger, won a Super Bowl. You have Kurt Warner, won a Super Bowl. Both had very different performances in the game. Kurt Warner was the MVP. The defense was the MVP when Pittsburgh won. Ben Roethlisberger did pretty much everything to lose that game, but the defense saved him. One thing these guys have in common is their pocket presence. You mentioned it early how, earlier how uh, Kurt Warner is very courageous in the pocket. He's able to take hits. Ben Roethlisberger is huge. He takes hits. Neither one's really that mobile, but they are both very good against the blitz. I mean, the Eagles sent everything at Warner, and the Ravens just the same against Roethlisberger. That's the one thing that they are able to do. They're able to just barely sidestep enough and hit their targets, and that's that's going to be really fun to watch those two and watch that in the Super Bowl at night. I'm not I'm not making a prediction right now, and I probably won't even make one on next Monday just because I've been wrong so many times in the playoffs. But I'm leaning leaning towards the Cardinals. Picked against them the whole time, and I figure, why not? Their defense is hot. I mean, common sense would say pick the best defense. But you know what? That that offense is, is pretty good, and Philadelphia's defense was supposed to be real good. They gave up 32 points. So I haven't seen a flaw in the Steelers' defense. I haven't, I haven't really seen the Steelers' defense let up at all this season. They're just so good on every level of that defense. I mean, from the defensive line, where you have Casey Hampton and nose tackle and Aaron Smith at, at end, and the linebackers with Woodley and Harrison coming off the, the you know the ends of the three four, and then you know Palomalu and Clark and you know, in the secondary and Townsend, so much experience and talent, and you know there's just not one weakness in that defense, and you know that Mike Tomlin will have them ready. Um, great defensive scheme and. You know, no team that Arizona faced so far in the postseason runs a 3-4 defense like like Pittsburgh and has nearly as good a defense, you know, as, as the Steelers boast. So, um, I mean, I, I, like you, I haven't I haven't made my decision yet either, but um, I, I'd imagine that Pittsburgh's defense will be a little bit riled up for that game and that, you know, they're going to be a little bit better than, than uh, you know, Carolina's was and, and then they faced last week as well. You're listening to the Spartan Sports Wrap here on the Impact 89FM. If you want to get a hold of us here, the number is 517-432-3893. We'd love to hear your opinions. I'm Scott. Pavel's with me. As always, we've got a new guest, Alex Altman, the basketball reporter for the State News here on the campus of Michigan State. Now, we mentioned last week, I figured that the Lions would hire Jim Schwartz, the defensive coordinator at that time for the Tennessee Titans. They made that official this last week. Lions have a new head coach, Jim Swartz, head co- or former defensive coordinator of the Tennessee Titans. I like the pick. I said last week that I thought he would be a good guy. He's a coordinator more than what Rod Marinelli was. He was just simply a defensive line coach, an associate head coach. And he was a scout before. He knows what he wants to do. He knows players. He's very good at um, judging his personnel. And that is very valuable for the draft. There's a few other position, coaching positions that are filling up, coming up now. I know Pavel's. I, I don't. Are you excited about this? The absolutely, Steve Spagnuolo, the 
the St. Louis Rams hired Steve Spagnuolo, the former defensive coordinator of the New York Giants. Look at that Giants defense. I mean, the Rams this year gave up more than 30 points nine times. And since Spagnuolo's been there with the Giants defense as the coordinator, they've only given up 30 points seven times in his tenure there. So I, it starts with the defense. You know, that's how the Rams really really start. I, I think they've got the offense. They've got Bolger. They've got Torrey Holt. They've got Steven Jackson, one of the best running backs in the NFL. So you patch up that defense, and the Rams might be a different team like and next year. And use the second overall pick. Absolutely. That, that'll that help. Now, also then today is announced Rex Ryan, the defensive coordinator of the Baltimore Ravens. He's the new New York Jets head coach. And let's see, what other ones were filled? The Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They released... Raheem Morris. Yeah, they released uh, John Gruden, which I said after um, Denver got rid of Mike Shanahan, I figured you know John Gruden might go because they were in the same category. I didn't expect it necessarily. It happened. They promoted, like you said, Raheem Morris... 32-year-old Raheem Morris, defensive backs coach, 32 Mike years Tomlin. old. Mm-hmm. Mike yeah. Tomlin. I never realized Mike Tomlin was that young either. But, I mean, these guys, I'm 23. He's nine years older than me, and he's a head coach in the NFL. Hey, they, they move up in the ranks real quick in the NFL because there's so many coordinators that leave that they have to replace them. And so coordinator spots just get filled so quick and so often that, these guys move up in the ranks. And also you see some of these coordinators or you know position coaches just have uh, an ability to relate to the players, especially if they're young. And I know Tomlin had an ability to uh, relate to his players. And you know some teams just kind of need a new breath of fresh air, need a new, new need a new leader. Even if you know John Gruden, I mean a terrific head coach, a guy who knows his X's and O's, is a great motivator. But sometimes the team just doesn't respond to that coach anymore, and you need to make a change. And I kind of think it's a little bit similar to the move the Pistons made. Detroit Pistons made during the offseason when they decided to hire Michael Curry as their new head coach to replace Flip Saunders. Saunders probably a better X's and O's guy, a guy who knows teams better, but Curry was hired by Dumars because he's able to relate to the players, and you know there were a lot of internal conflicts going on in that Pistons locker room last year, and Dumars thought that Curry was the guy who could settle those you know, internal disputes and you know make the team better in that in that respect. And I think maybe a similar thing going on in Tampa Bay with that hiring of Raheem Morris because, I mean, Gruden's a, a terrific head coach. And, I mean, the, the, the fact that they let him go about two, like two weeks after the season ended, about two weeks after almost all the decisions had been made around the league about whether they were going to fire their head coaches or not, that's, that's pretty shocking to me. But they obviously knew that Raheem Morris was the guy who should succeed Gruden. Well, what I was thinking about the Lions coaching position, I thought – that they should have hired somebody with previous head coaching experience, someone who's been there before, someone who's you know ha- been a head coach because they hired Marinelli, who's the defensive line coach. They hired a coordinator, but none of these guys have head coaching experience, and maybe they need someone who will get in there and really take control of that locker room, really make some changes in house, and you know get the right players that they need. So. Yes, they went with Jim Schwartz. We'll see how that goes. Well, I think a lot of people want to bash Rod Marinelli for the job that he did with the Lions. And, you know, I'm not saying that he was a great coach. And I know that I think one of his biggest flaws is that he, he's the one who kind of lobbied Millen to bring in his own former out, like, you know, his, the, the former players in Tampa Bay, guys who were kind of thrown away by that organization who, because, I mean, they, they had new guys to replace him. But Marinelli thought that they would come in and 
be great additions to that cover two defense, and they kind of flamed out, and that's a real big reason for you know the the reason that Marinelli was ousted. I think Marinelli happens to be a terrific head coach, and I think he's going to do a, a terrific job in uh, Chicago under his uh, you know former former assistant Lovey Smith with the Bears, and you know as a Lions fan, I, I can't a Lions fan who doesn't really like the team that much, especially after last season. It'll be interesting to see Chicago's defensive line attack Lions offensive line. But anyway, what I'm trying to get at is no matter who you hire, whether it's a former head coach, former coordinator, former position coach. The big thing is you need talent. I mean, great talent can make a bad coach look really good. Bad talent can make a good coach look really bad. And the Lions had the worst talent of any team in NFL history last season. Calvin Johnson, I mean, a great player. But other than that, there's not a single player on that team who you look at as a franchise player. Kevin Smith showed flashes, but I mean, an, an offensive line in shambles, a defensive, I mean, a defensive unit that, I mean, not only was in disarray, but just didn't have enough talent to compete, execute his system, and the biggest key for the Lions this offseason is going to be bringing in fresh talent, good talent, and they have a lot of picks in this year's NFL draft. They have three third-rounders, I believe. They've got two first-rounders. They've got a lot of picks, and they got to make the most of those. And I'm, I've been trying to get a hold of the Lions front office and talk to Scott McEwen, their director of college scouting, to see if I can get some information from him, see what he wants to do with the pick. Of course, today their offices are closed. It's a holiday and apparently last week, nobody nobody decided to go into the offices. Or maybe it was two weeks ago. They were somehow closed middle of the day. You know, I figured the Lions, with the season they had, it wasn't that surprising. But I'll keep trying on that. So hopefully you can get some front office people to uh, call into the show. Try to try to see what they're doing. Maybe talk to, talk to Jim Schwartz himself. You never know. Now there's a few... Couple things I missed last week. Always do. Always, always get on, get going on something. We forget. Now, uh, baseball Hall of Fame. They announced the winners and or the people who were voted in. And Ricky Henderson on his first ballot, he made it in. Almost a unanimous vote. He got about ninety-five percent. And then Jim Rice on his last year of eligibility, his fifteenth, got in. Now Ricky Henderson, he's the best leadoff hitter of all time. In Major League Baseball, he leads to the he's the career leader in leadoff home runs, stolen bases, runs scored. I mean, you name it, and he's right up there on the list. Besides power numbers, I don't understand how he's not a unanimous pick. How there's some people who didn't vote for him, and it, the voting is done by the Baseball Writers Association of America. Now, I don't understand. First off, how some people couldn't vote for Ricky Henderson when he leads all those categories. Some people said, "Oh, nobody's worthy." of getting in on their first year on the ballot. How does somebody get better uh, in their second year on the ballot, their third year? They've been retired. It's not like their numbers are improving. Their numbers are staying exactly the same. Like Jim Rice, he had to wait 15 times he's been on the ballot. His numbers have been the same since the first time he was on to the last time he was on. Now, yet somehow more people are voting for him. I. It seems like a very flawed system. I don't know... I'm not. I'm not one of the voters. I don't know how. I don't. I'm not in their minds to see their strategy as the voting. But it just seems very strange to me. But by any, any all means, congratulations to those those two. We can't spend too much time on that. I just wanted to mention that. Forgot it last week. Also, Joel Foreman, uh, left guard for Michigan State football team, was named freshman All American. Want to congratulate him? Second year in a row. That a Michigan State player has been a fresh. A third actually was Swenson yep. and Greg Jones. Yep, kicker Brett Swenson, then linebacker Greg Jones. So, some things missed last week. Want to congratulate all those people. Now, sticking with the congratulations, um, 
this weekend was the national competition for mascots, cheer, and dance team. Now, Sparty took fourth place down in Orlando in Nationals. I want to congratulate him. It was fourth place after the video, fourth place after the uh, performance. Chip from uh, Colorado won it. Probably not too many people know. Check out the videos on YouTube. They're amazing. The things are hilarious. If you enjoy watching mascots be crazy, then that's exactly all the, <laughs> what that is. And the dance team took 8th and 14th place in the two categories they were in. So we got that stuff out of the way. Won't forget that. Now we can move on to NCAA basketball. <laughs> Finally, Pavel's, Pavel's been waiting. He's every week, every week. This is my baby. Exactly. And, of course, we've got Alex, who is the men's basketball reporter for the state news, so I'm sure you, you've got a wealth of knowledge about this. Michigan State, we're uh, ranked number seven in both the polls, the AP Top 25 and the ESPN USA Today. Now, just what do you think about this week? We beat Penn State and we beat Illinois. How are things looking? Uh, things are looking very good. First time since the 1978, I'm sorry, the 1977-1978 season, I believe that MSU started the started conference play with a 5-0 and record. And I actually have a piece coming out in the state news tomorrow that talks about how, I mean, to me, how inconceivable and how, how crazy it is that this is the first time through all the Big Ten titles and, you know, the two national championships since then, that this is the first time that they've started conference play 5-0. and um, Sorry for the self-promoting plug there, but, you know, anyway, uh, they're, they're looking great right now. What, what really impresses me most about them right now is their depth and the fact that they're doing this without having really played the best game of the season yet. Uh, they're, they're rebounding well. I've read a stat today that they're actually collecting, I believe, somewhere like 50% of their misses since Big Ten play started, and that is an astounding figure right there. They're rebounding well. I mean, in every season, every every single game, someone is stepping up and really giving them a big contribution, whether it's off the bench or in the starting lineup. Like against Illinois on Saturday, Marquise Gray stepped up, scored 11 points and six rebounds. He had probably his best game of his turbulent, you know, four or five year career. And, uh, you know, others stepped up as well. And it seems like every single game right now, Pavel, they're just, I mean, someone is stepping up to, to put this team over the edge and get them the W. And you said it. I think everything is in place this year for this team to succeed. You know, it helps that we don't go to Wisconsin this year. Yes. You know, we just happen to, happen to be this year. But, you know, like you said, we were all at the press conference after the Illinois game. And, you know, Tom Izzo was as puzzled as we all were mm -hmm. is to how we actually won that game when Kalen Lucas was shut down, Raymar Morgan was sick and shut down. I mean, they scored one point. Those two, our top scorers, scored one point combined in the first half. Raymar scored his first basket with nine minutes and 30 seconds left in the game. He went essentially three quarters of the game without scoring. Well, here's the craziest figure of that entire game. game. In the first half, the last nine minutes of the first half when they just went in that complete and total funk they actually had more turnovers, nine, than shot attempts, eight, in those, that last nine minutes of the first half. I mean, it seemed like they just started to unravel inexplicably, but, you know, they, they still bounced back and won that game. And their defense was give, keeping give, them in give it. The president, give the Izzo credit, too, because I mean, they really were alive that game, coming from Opeed, and they, they were just really, it's probably the loudest I've ever heard them. Yeah, absolutely, it was the loudest, and, you know, it gave me goosebumps just hearing it. Every basket right at the end, it was just... It was big, and like you said, you know, every we all hate Illinois. Everybody hates Illinois more because they play us so hard. They play us harder than any probably any team in the Big Ten, and so you know, 
All the fans have a little extra hate for Illinois. It's Illinois and Wisconsin. Those are the two biggest basketball rivals. I mean, everybody would assume that it's Michigan. Now, I would I would put Michigan third or fourth. I mean, Wisconsin's number one. I'd put I would them behind say. Indiana, even. Wow, that's that's lower than I would expect. I I'd go Wisconsin number one, Illinois two as the like biggest rivals teams I dislike playing the most. I put it nicely. I tr- I'll try. Then you've got I think Ohio State because of lately with Greg Oden and all that. They're the last team to beat us at home. Exactly. Yeah. You've got that, and then I put Michigan, Indiana, right around there. But I mean. Illinois, it was it was fantastic to see. Morris Peterson had his jersey retired, as we mentioned. We said that it was going to happen. He couldn't stick around long. He had to come go back and beat the Pistons later that night down in down at the Palace of Auburn Hills. But it's always it's always great when the players get to come back and share their experiences with everybody. I mean, it was very heartfelt. His speech that he gave basically to Coach Izzo. And then having all of his former teammates that were in the stands, too, just sprinkled throughout the stands. It's always great. I loved it when Mateen got his jersey retired. It's just a fantastic moment to, t- to be a part of. And then, of course, we had to win on the night that Morris Peterson's getting his jersey retired. It would just be such a shame if we didn't. Because I think we, we lost the game uh, that Mor- Mateen got his number retired. I think Was that the Ohio State game? Um, I, I, yeah, or the no, yeah, yeah, it was the Ohio State game. It was the Ohio State game mm. with Greg Oden. So you know they had to make up for it because how could they lose both games that they, you know, the guys from the 2000 national championship team. Charlie Bell might not. They might not let Charlie Bell's number get retired if they're going to lose another one at home. But that win, that win's big. It put us at five and zero in the Big Ten, like you were saying. Everybody else has at least two losses right now. Everybody has two losses. Minnesota is second. They're four and two. Illinois, Ohio State, Purdue, Wisconsin. They're all right there at three and two. Now I'm looking at this schedule. Here's here's a rundown of our remaining schedule. We have Northwestern at home coming up on Wednesday. I think yes. I think yeah. it's Wednesday. Yep. We go to Ohio State on Sunday. Then away against Iowa, at home against Penn State, home against Minnesota, home against Indiana, at Michigan, at Purdue Home against Wisconsin, home against Iowa, at Illinois, at Indiana, and home against Purdue. Now, we've got a two-game advantage in the loss department, just just with losses. So if you figure... Four of our next six are at home. Yeah. Now, I'm looking through this. What what games do you see as losses? Now, Pavel, you mentioned, what, three losses in conference? Is that what you were saying? Three or four. Three or four. I've got... I've got some games like just with question marks here next to them. The games that I think are just kind of questionable. Michigan away. Although Michigan's played very poorly of late. They've really dropped off. Purdue away. Purdue's, Purdue's a tough team. They haven't. Nobody's playing exceptionally well right now, obviously, with all the two losses. Wisconsin at home. Wisconsin always plays us tough. There's just no question about that. Then Illinois away. Because Illinois played us really... Just they played a very good game. Nobody, I mean, it was one of the ugliest games you'll see. Thankfully, we came out with the win on on Saturday. Now, those are the four games that we could lose. I'm not saying we will, 
Those are four that I'm putting as a loss. Don't overlook uh, don't overlook Ohio State either. Right. Uh, we play Ohio State this weekend, and Ohio State is playing really well. William Buford just took home Big Ten Player of the Week honors, a, f- a, f- a freshman, a former five-star recruit. Uh, you know that that team's really clicking right now too. Even in the absence of David Lighty, Evan Turner stepped up big, and that's going to be a team that um, that has the athleticism to match up with the Spartans on the wings. And there is no guarantee that MSU uh, escapes from that game uh, then, with the win either. And then you've got to figure there's all these other teams. I mean, from top to bottom, there's any team can beat you. I mean, Indiana hasn't won a game in conference yet. They're really struggling, but they can still put it together. The Big Ten, you never want to play on the road. That's what's huge about starting the season. We've already had three road games, which is huge. We only won three road games all last season Yeah, in the I mean, Big Ten. That's, that's monstrous. And we have a two-game advantage already. If we lose only three games out of these remaining, that's every other team would only be able to lose one to tie us for the Big Ten title. You know, and you, know, you said last year we had three road games wins before that the two years before that we were like one and seven on the road one and seven and the one win was northwestern yeah so we've got the team as i said before we've got the team that's built to pull out some big road wins we've got the depth we can wear wear teams down and i think that ohio state game on coming up on sunday i think michigan state's usually they play pretty well at value city arena in columbus yeah. I think they do always give them a pretty good game there. Yeah, they they do. Uh, what impresses me most about uh, the way we've been beating these conference teams right now is the Big Ten features more parity this season than I think it has um, in a long, long time. Not to say that the Big Ten hasn't been top-heavy in past years that because um, they have had some very good teams, Wisconsin last year and uh, Indiana was great last year as well. But this year, from top to bottom, every single team in the conference, with the uh, the exception of Indiana and Iowa, has the potential to upset us. Um, Northwestern even, we're playing them this weekend. A lot of people look at Northwestern, they overlook Northwestern, but they play that 1-3-1. It's complicated, and uh, it, 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 it causes a lot of matchup problems. And They score a lot of points, and if they catch fire from the wings and they start hitting three-point shots, then they're a team to look out for. Craig Moore always plays MSU very well, uh, as does Kevin Coble. So they're, they're, they're not even a pushover anymore. So the fact that... MSU is 5-0 in the Big Ten for the first time in about 31 years, and they're doing this when the conference is as stacked as it is this year, really says that this team um, has the potential to make a big run in the NCAA tournament. I believe that the Big Ten right now is number one in conference RPI ratings. Uh, MSU has defeated the most uh, the most teams uh, in the RPI top 50 this season with seven. Uh, they're playing really well. During the non-conference schedule, Big Ten had a lot of upsets over non-conference teams, and you know, Big Ten's great this year, and so it's it's awfully impressive what they're doing. Now, to go along with that, Coach Izzo, in his press conference after the game, he was talking about how he thinks the Big Ten is the best conference. I mean, top to bottom, they're the best. Now, I, I got to thinking, now, where the numbers, the rankings don't necessarily show it. There's four teams from the Big Ten ranked in the top 25, according to the AP poll. I'm just going by that. We're number seven. Purdue's number 18, Minnesota's 21, Illinois snuck in at 25. Now you've got that, and then you've got these conferences like the Big East that is just just stacked. I mean, there's so many teams in the Big East that it's not really fair. And there's good games all throughout the Big East. I mean, there's one going on right now. Uh, who is it? Pitt versus Syracuse. It started at 7 o'clock. Was it a 7 o'clock game? Or it was a 7 o'clock. o'clock game. Um, 
you know, I'm not sure that there is a 9 o'clock game. Mm. I'm not sure what the one is after that. But then Wednesday, you have Villanova and UConn playing. Mm. So, I mean, there's just so many good matchups there. Then the ACC, they've got four teams in the top ten. Wake Forest is number one, new number one after Pitt lost to Louisville. Duke's number two, UNC's number five, and Clemson's number ten. Uh, or number nine, depending on where you look. UNC and Clemson play each other on Wednesday. That should be a great game. Now, I'm just going to run through the Big East. Now, Pitt lost its first game of the season. First game of the season, they dropped to fifth in the Big East standings. I mean, that's that's how tough it is. got Marquette, who's ranked number 11, Louisville 9, UConn 3, Syracuse 8, Pitt 4, Villanova's number 20, Georgetown's number 12, Notre Dame's number 19. That is eight teams in the top 20. I mean, that that's unheard of. Not just the top 25, but the top 20. So, you said, I mean, statistically, the Big Ten has the highest RPI. What conference do you think is the best, Alex? I think uh, you'd have to say the Big East is, is the best overall. Um, you're talking about best teams in the country, say, are in the ACC, are on that coast. Uh, I think North Carolina still is the best team in the country. They had that two-game hiccup where they lost to... Uh, who they lose to? They lost to Wake Forest. Wake Forest. And then they were upset by yeah, Maryland BC. or Boston, Boston College, College, who who lost the the following day to uh, Harvard. to Harvard. So, but that being said, I still think North Carolina is the best team in the nation, and you know it's hard to discount what Wake Forest has done this season, going to Clemson and beating them. And Clemson is a good team, and you know Clemson is another one of those teams in the ACC that that's pretty that's pretty qualified to uh, um, you know make a big run in the NCAA tournament. So I'd say that best team in the country or best conference in the country is the ACC, but most legitimately good teams in the country is probably the Big East and the Big Ten close third. I'll say the ACC because, you know, just like you said, in the Big Ten, there's no easy games with the exception of Indiana. There's no exceptions in the ACC. A team like the Virginia Cavaliers can go into UNC or Duke and pull out a win. Virginia, I think, beat uh, Duke last year, somebody at home in their own house. So, I mean, any team in the ACC from top to bottom is I think Virginia game. Tech beat Duke yeah. last year. Yeah, Virginia Tech was... at Duke, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've said before that I just love watching the ACC. When that tournament comes around, you've got these teams. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I've never really liked the Big East I just because they have – how many teams do they have? They've got, what, 17? Six, 16, I think. 16. Some, I mean, just a ridiculous amount of teams. And they always talk every year around tournament time they're like, Oh, they're going to set records. It's amazing how many teams they're getting in. Well, if you look at it, they make they get about half their teams in. Well, I'm not sure if it was last year or the year before. The Big Ten got seven teams in. Seven out of 11 compared to eight out of 16 or nine out of 16. That's a lot better percentage-wise. I mean, if you look at it, they got more, but they simply have a bigger pool to draw from. Yeah, well, people always look at the, you know, the the Yukons and the Georgetowns, whether they look at the, the, the St. John's and the... Uh... You know the, the Rhode Islands and the DePauls, yeah. and you, you can over you even overlook the DePauls even in the Big East, but mm. they are. And Rutgers is. Yeah, there's know. a lot of teams down at the bottom that you don't know. South Florida, are. exactly. Yeah. Now yeah. I'm looking. Uh, ESPN, they have their bracketology out already. Joe Lunardi, a reporter oh, for yeah, them. They've had it out since uh, the first week. Since day one. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. They. I don't know. I I mean, I'm looking at it, so they've got somebody looking at it. You know, it it works on me. But they have Michigan State as number two seed. Put them in the Midwest, the Indianapolis uh, region. Now, the number one seeds they have here are Duke, 
Pittsburgh, Wake Forest, and Connecticut. Not even North Carolina. Now, okay, right now, technically, North Carolina's ranked 5th or 6th. They've lost 2. But I agree with you. They're the best team. I mean, right now, they've lost. They have 2 losses. Wake Forest has none. So they're number 1. Okay, but I still think Carolina's the best team Mm -hmm. in the country. They're a 2 seed. Now, for everybody that's in this, the 3 would be Marquette. For Michigan State. Very familiar matchup. We beat them last year. The four seed, let me find this, the four seed is Memphis, who is down. Then UCLA is fifth. With Duke at number one in that division, I think that Duke would be the easiest team for us to beat. I'm not sure. I haven't seen Duke that much. I know Pitt's a little undersized, but they're scrappy. Out of those four number one teams, who do you think would be the easiest, the best matchup for us? Wake Forest, Connecticut, Pittsburgh, or Duke? Well, I'd say Duke. I'd agree with you. I just think that Duke really lacks an inside presence. They have a lot of guards. Um, you know, Kyle Singler um, is, is probably their most versatile player. He's a forward. But inside, they don't really have, I don't think, anyone who could match up with Goran Sutan. And MSU really doesn't have a dominant player, you know, up front either. But I, I still think that MSU has the athleticism to compete with Duke. I think Duke maybe relies a little bit too much on the three-point shot. That being said, they play terrific defense. I mean, Mike Krzyzewski's teams always play great defense, and this year's squad is no exception. Uh, when you have Greg Paulus backing up Nolan Smith, I mean, Greg Paulus an established, you know, a senior who, who started the last two seasons. I mean, that really it just says it all for Duke and how deep they are as a team. And um, But, you know, all that being said, I still think we'd have the best chance of upsetting Duke, and I don't really think it would be an upset. What do you think, Paul? I'll say Wake, because they're a lot based on Jeff Teague. I think a guy like Travis Walton guards Jeff Teague, shuts him down, and you know Wake Forest is looking for someone else to you know, get points from somewhere else. So they've got some big guys, but obviously Michigan State, every time they've had to go to a Final Four, they've had to go through a Duke or a Kentucky or a big powerhouse or in the same year, back-to-back games. So I would still say Wake because if you shut down Jeff Teague, you don't know what kind of team you're going to have with Wake. Well, we've seen the way that Duke, though, has flamed out in early rounds in the NCAA tournament the last two seasons, and that's because they're too reliant on the three-point shot. If they're not on, then, you know, they're they're screwed for all intents and purposes. And so this year, um, I don't really think that Duke is much different. And so that's why I'm going to say Duke. But, you know, Wake Forest are right, and MSU always does a great job at pinpointing the opposing teams of his player yeah, like and limiting their Temple. effectiveness. Last year with Temple with Deontay Christmas, Christmas yep. yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, obviously things are going to pan out more and more. It's going to get real exciting as March comes up. We get all these conference tournaments. And, I mean, we're not even halfway through the regular season, so it's no big deal there. Pavel, we didn't get to the NBA. We never do. I mean, I don't like it. The Pistons lost five in a row. LeBron plays Kobe tonight. LeBron and Kobe. That's what I want to watch. I want to see those two. The MVPs. I mean, split the MVP. Give it to both of them. You got to see uh, uh, Dwight Howard go up the other day. The Magic just looked so tough. A little bit of MSU sports real quick before we go here. Jeff Lurk had 54 saves and a loss. I mean, the, over the weekend. The hockey team, I'm sorry, they're just just bad. I'm sorry, I feel bad for Jeff Lurk. Women's basketball, they won two games, improving their record to 12-6. and six. Things look good. Got big games coming up in men's basketball and other sports, gymnastics, wrestling. They're all going. Alex, thank you very much for coming in. Yeah, I look forward to reading your article tomorrow cool. in the State News. And we'll toss it up to the Jazz Spectrum. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. 
You've been listening to the Spartan Sports Wrap on Impact Exposure. Tune in every week for more of the greatest sports information, news, and analysis. Here and only here on Impact 89FM.